Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to look at the third contrast between what the scribes and the Pharisees taught and what Jesus taught. And the topic this morning is marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The Pharisees asked Jesus a question trying to trap him in Matthew 19.3. And every time they asked him a question, it was basically to see if Jesus was going to say something against Scripture or contradictory to Scripture. So in Matthew 19.3, they asked Jesus, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Because they believed they had that right. The termination of marriage is the subject of this contrast in the Sermon on the Mount between what the religious leaders taught and what Jesus taught in his day. There was quite a contrast between the two. And that contrast still exists this very moment between what Jesus taught about divorce and what is taught in most religious circles. And in dealing with this subject of divorce, which also includes the matter of remarriage after a divorce, we need to We need to inform those listening to this message. That is, if they don't already know, that few topics can ruffle the feathers at church as quickly as the subject of divorce. Now, divorce is a very controversial subject. But it's not because the scriptures aren't clear. The scriptures are very clear. It's because the flesh is strong. And the flesh wants its own way. And those who oppose divorce and remarriage after divorce, like Jesus did, won't be very popular people in the church or society. One of the biggest reasons in a, in a lot of churches for this problem of, of intolerance for those who, who oppose divorce and remarriage of divorced people, which is really just adhering to the scriptures, is because there are many divorced people in the church. Look at verse 31 now of Matthew 5. And Jesus said, Furthermore, it has been said. Notice, here's, what he's, here's the contrast. It has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So this law is found in Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1. Moses said, When a man takes a wife and marries her, it happens that, and if it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Now, divorce is over at that point. But later on, when the religious leaders asked Jesus about the issue of divorce, Jesus gave them the reason. Jesus said in Matthew 19 8, he's telling them why. Moses uh, gave the, 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 the certificate of divorce. He said, because of the hardness of your hearts. He said, Moses permitted you. He allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Notice where Jesus goes to tell him what the right what thing was. He said, from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 2. Divorce was meant to be a permanent relationship till death do you part. But in this situation, Moses wrote the certificate of divorcement and permitted you because of the hardness of your heart. That basically people unwilling to forgive and work things out. 
the Jews were a hard-hearted, stubborn people and, and, and very shameless in the way that they lived. They would marry as many wives as they wanted <clears throat> and divorce as often as they wanted and for whatever reason they wanted. So as a result, these wicked practices by the people that Moses made a law, uh, Moses made a law that required divorce proceedings to follow some stated restrictions before divorce could be granted. The law, of Moses, the law of Moses wasn't a blank check for divorce, but uh, to, for, to, and to try it out, uh, he wrote it to put some control on a spiteful and despicable practice that was taking place among the Israelites at that time. Now, the law required three main requirements in order to get a divorce. Number one, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. Again, Deuteronomy 24.1. And at that uncleanness, uh, if it was adultery, uh, it couldn't be adultery because, again, adultery was punishable by death. So the uncleanness didn't, didn't cover adultery because, again, it was punishable by death. The word uncleanness literally means nudity. So this uncleanness that was mentioned in Deuteronomy 24.1 this uncleanness was any kind of improper, shameful, or indecent behavior, anything stopping short of adultery that was unbecoming to a woman and embarrassing to her husband. Indecent exposure was the evil that permitted divorce. The second requirement in the certificate of, of divorce was, uh, that was needed was a uh, was. The stated reason, this, this, this was a certificate that stated the reason, and then it was given to the wife. Men in the Old Testament did the divorcing because women didn't usually have much status then. So divorce was made something formal, something serious. And the idea behind it was to impress upon the minds of those people that it was a serious step to divorce. It wasn't something that should be taken lightly in, in a moment of anger or, or disappointment or unhappiness. When a man suddenly felt like, you know what? I don't want to be married to my wife anymore and I want to get rid of her. The third requirement for the divorce, it was to be permanent. Deuteronomy 24.4 said that divorced couple could not be remarried to each other. They couldn't remarry each other. This stopped marriage from being an on-again, off-again situation. It made divorce final. So this meant that a man couldn't throw his wife out and then take her back again. The man needed to understand that divorcing his wife was a permanent thing. It made the man have to think twice about his, his, his decision to divorce her. So no doubt it would slow down the impulsiveness and the thoughtlessness of getting a divorce. To go through the proceedings to protect her from hasty and cruel actions by the man. So this was what the original certificate of divorce was all about. And that's what Jesus was talking about here. It was the law which Moses wrote up to deal with the shameful problem of divorce among the Israelites. But here's the problem. There was this confusion. There was this cloud over this requirement of Moses that, that, was, you know, that it was done uh, and, and because of a command from a holy God. The confusion was, is that's why Jesus said later on regarding this law, from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, this wasn't the original plan God had for marriage. That is divorce. And Jesus would take people back to the original plan, which said a man shall be, uh, shall cleave to his wife, 
They shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24, marriage was not to end. It was forever. So what is it that makes so many Christians believe they can divorce? Why is the Christian divorce rate as high or higher than non-Christian marriages? What is it about that, that you know, that, that we believe, you know, that, 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 that makes us more open to divorce? When before there was nothing but shame. Well, first of all, it's the refusal to accept God's word. And a lot of Christians insist that God's word is not binding on Christians as a rule of life. So they ignore God's word. They ignore the scriptures. Any scripture they they disagree with in their own personal opinions. Opinions that they usually say is from the Lord. One of the scriptures that's used to support their position for divorce is quoted out of context. Galatians 5.18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so they say, oh, well, you know, the Spirit led me. And it says that the Spirit, that, you know, you are not under law if you're led by the Spirit. In other words, the supposed leading of the Holy Spirit. It's thought to replace and override the word of God. But understand, the Holy Spirit never contradicts Scripture. The Holy Spirit is God. God says, I hate divorce. The Holy Spirit will never lead you in a direction that goes against God's Word. Now, those who insist the Scripture, that the Scripture, and Jesus himself lay down the, the absolute laws, now, they say, well, you guys are legalists. You guys are legalists. And yet we read that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, which means for knowing and learning what's right. It's for reproof to teach you what's not right. It's for correction. It's for making it right for instruction in righteousness, how to stay right that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So those who believe this wrong doctrine, that if you're led by the Spirit, you know, and you're not, you're no longer under the law. Those who believe this wrong doctrine, you know, uh, it isn't that we've been saved from the law. Okay, it doesn't mean that we've been saved from the law. And, and where the Holy Spirit is leading, he frees us from the law of God or God's word. The thinking goes like this. I believe and trust that I've been set free from my marriage. And here's why. Because I have the, I have peace about it. Well, first of all, it's a false peace. Because God's word says it is not good for man to be alone. And he's provided a place. You know, somebody might say, well, you know what? Uh, The the Holy Spirit, God's provided a place for me, you know, and he's provided finances for me. and, and, And I'm just doing really well. So it must be God's will. Wrong. Paul said, you know, and they and a lot of people take this text that, well, you know, God's called me to peace. And they use 1 Corinthians 7, 15. It says, but if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the Christian husband or wife is no longer bound to the other. For God has called you to live in peace. But notice the context. 
The context is if a husband or wife is not a believer and they don't want to live with you because you've become a Christian, let them go because you haven't been called because you've been called to peace. But most of the time you just hear, well, God has called you to live in peace. So they remove it from the context of living with a believer or a believer. And they use that for supporting the decision to, to divorce. How can it be the leading of the Holy Spirit? Your feelings and your circumstances will not, cannot, and do not change God's word. God says, I hate divorce. See, one of the problems is self-love. It's a self-centeredness that says, you know what? I'm not getting anything out of this relationship. I don't have any feelings for this person anymore. It focuses on self and it takes our focus off of God. It takes our focus away from God. Because God becomes less and less visible and less and less a part in my life, it leaves me open for otherworldly things to come into my life. The existing attitude today is me first. Me first. And that attitude is a suicide to marriage. Then there's the pleasure-seeking attitude. The pursuit of pleasure. We let pleasure control us. And for a lot of Christians, marriage has become a conditional relationship. It's conditional on enjoyment. And yet Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love seeks not its own. Paul said in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. See, it's not all about me, especially when I get married. Now, for those who, who you know, look at these, these things about, you know, self-pleasure and, and, and self-seeking, and, and they look at all these things for themselves, these people base their authority now on moral questions. They now look at or, or go to psychologists. They want to talk to the professional. Oh, well, I need to go to a professional counselor rather than seek God's word. Listen to some of the advice given by some of these uh, professional counselors. He said, God made marriage for people. He didn't make people for marriage. He provided this so that people could enjoy each other to the fullest. I say, if you have two people that are not thriving healthy in a situation, I say remove the marriage. In other words, if your feelings and your pleasure aren't being satisfied and you're not enjoying your marriage to the fullest, you should let it go. That is your marriage. You should let it go. Here's another one. If your marriage isn't making you happy anymore, divorce can be the most successful thing you've ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. The Bible doesn't tell me that's how I grow and become sexful and, and triumph. In other words, by making your pleasure and your self-fulfillment the guide of your life, you can fail at marriage and still be a success. You can fail at marriage and still call it a success. Destruction, growth, with, with and failure, you can call all those things a victory. But again, this isn't what the Bible says. Genesis 2.24 says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined. The word means to be joined in a permanent way. It means to be glued upon, never meant to be separated. And it says, and they shall become one flesh. 
permanence. Marriage involves leaving and cleaving in permanent and intense intimacy. And that's the way Jesus himself understood this when the Pharisees asked him about divorce. Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Jesus said to the Pharisees when they asked him about divorce, Have you not read? That is always the problem. We either haven't read the scriptures or we don't know the scriptures. He said to them, Have you not read? That he who made them at the beginning, notice he's taking them right back to the original marriage, the original uh, 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 point where, where God instituted marriage in Genesis. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So that's the, the, the rule for the church. And there it is for the church, and it's coming straight from Jesus' mouth. In the beginning, divorce was unthinkable and impossible. There was no hint, there was no suggestion of divorce. God's best was and still is a monogamous, that is one spouse for life, intimate, permanent marriage. Anything less is deviating from God's model. The Pharisees tried using an old argument, like I said in Deuteronomy 24.1, asking if a man could divorce his wife for just any reason he wanted to. Jesus answered by saying that divorce is not God's standard. So the Pharisees came back with another reference in Matthew 19.7. They said to Moses, well, Moses, then why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? Here's the problem. Go back and read God did not command to give a permanent a certificate of divorce. He permitted it. You see, the argument was that Moses made a way for divorce. So how, how, how Jesus, can you say it's no part of the deal? Well, again, look at what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 8. Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted you, not commanded you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Jesus straightened out the Pharisees. He said Moses only permitted divorce. He didn't command divorce like the Pharisees said he did. What Moses did was the granting of a divorce certificate for the woman's protection. You see, without a certificate of, of divorce, she'd be open to abuse and even to blame. The reason God allowed divorce was because the hearts of the men of Israel were hard and they were cruel. So this was a special consideration by God because of human weakness. It was a special special consideration for man's sinfulness. But it can't be taken as approval. It was unwilling permission at best. Verse 32, Jesus said, But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, notice, for any reason except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Notice what it says there. The only acceptable reason for divorce is sexual immorality, unfaithfulness in the wedding, in the marriage. Not irreconcilable, you know know what I mean. (laughs) Irreconcilable differences. You know what that means? We just can't get along. That's all it means. We can't get along. Bible doesn't say that's grounds for divorce. 
Well, I don't like this person anymore. The Bible doesn't say that's grounds for divorce. I don't have love for this person. That doesn't, that doesn't, the Bible doesn't say that gives grounds for divorce. Only sexual immorality, unfaithfulness in the marriage. That is the exception. In verse 32, we get to the very heart of what Jesus was teaching as to why and when divorce is permitted. I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Hear the meaning of what Jesus is saying. It rests on the right interpretation of the phrase except for sexual immorality and especially the simple word immorality, which is unfaithfulness. The Greek word here for immorality is pornea. We get the English word pornography from it. Greek dictionaries tell us that pornea means unchastity, fornication, prostitution, or other kinds of unlawful intercourse. And when pornea is applied to married people, it means, as verse 32 says, sexual immorality. It means marital unfaithfulness. It means illicit intercourse, which may involve adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, and others. All of these offenses were punishable by death in the Old Testament. These sins, though, I mean, these sins are what ended marriage. It wasn't divorce. These sins are what ended marriage. It wasn't divorce. But in Jesus' day, the Roman law and its legal system made the death sentence for these offenses hard to get. Because of that, the Jews replaced divorce for death. The question of divorce being allowed wasn't the question because divorce was, not, was a given, not just for adultery, but for a lot of other defenses, offenses as well. So the point is this. Jesus was a lot stricter than the rabbis because he superseded the teaching of Deuteronomy chapter 4. And he said that the only grounds for divorcing one's spouse was marital unfaithfulness, an offense that was originally punished by death. So here... It, if you divorce for any reason and remarry, it's you who commits adultery. This is the same meaning of Jesus' similar statement in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 32 here. Jesus said, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except, except for sexual immorality causes them or him or her, her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Jesus' teaching is clear. Jesus permitted divorce and remarriage on one ground and one ground only, marital unfaithfulness. Notice he permitted it. He did not command it. Divorce is never, never mandatory. And too many times husbands and wives, you know, they're, they're ready to use the unfaithfulness uh, as their loophole to get out of the relationship. They've been wanting to get out and they go, oh, now here, here's my way out. No, it, it, it's, it's not mandatory. It, it's not the, the death blow to marriage. Because if you allow God to work in you and through you, it can be restored and it can be better than ever. You see, it's so easy to look for a way out instead of working out the problems and we shouldn't look at a one-time affair as an easy excuse for for divorce 
as my, as my ticket out. And especially if the person is repentant, they know that they've blown it, and they're truly sorry, and they've asked for forgiveness, your, your responsibility now is to forgive them as a Christian. I understand the world say, forget you. You're done. We're done. But as a Christian, we don't do that. God is glorified through marriages like this. To see healing and, 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 and the love rebuilt and the trust rebuilt. God gets glorified through that. Because it's a work of God. Divorce doesn't glorify God. We should think about this matter of sexual immorality in terms of an unfaithful lifestyle. If that spouse wants to continue in an unfaithful relationship with another person and they don't want to stop, now, okay, there, there you are. You, you have, you know, grounds for the divorce. Because they don't want to repent. They don't want to come back. They don't want to make things right with their, with their, with their spouse. So that, that, that's how you, you look at sexual immorality in the terms of an unfaithful lifestyle. It's ongoing. A mate who refuses to turn from their, idol, their, adulterous, their adulterous ways. But Jesus' exception should be viewed like this. No matter how rough things are, regardless of the stress and strain or whatever is said about compatibility and temperament, Nothing allows for divorce except one thing, unfaithfulness. And then it's not to be used as an excuse to get out of the marriage. And then many times you hear people say, well, you know, my situation is different. You don't understand. You don't know my husband. You don't know my, house, my, my, my spouse. Listen to what Oswald Chambers says about that thinking. He says, beware in case you think you are tempted like no one else is tempted. What you go through is the common inheritance of the race, not something no one ever went through before. God doesn't save us from temptation. He helps us in the midst of them. And if you never had any problems, how would you know God could solve them? And since he personally has gone through sufferings and temptation, that is the Lord, he's able to help us when we're being tempted. So what Jesus did here, he personally has gone through suffering and temptation. He knows how to deal with it, but he's closed all the loopholes on the Old Testament divorce provision in Deuteronomy 24. This was a radical change. And the way the disciples responded to Jesus' answer shows how radical his teaching was. When he gave the, 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 when, he, when he said that, you know, that, that except for uh, immorality, there's no grounds for divorce, he said, that the, the Pharisee said, well, if such is the case of man with his wife, it's better not to marry. There it is. The disciples were shocked by the radical idea of permanence of marriage. And if only grounds for divorce was unfaithfulness, and if none of the uh, uh, exceptions suggested by the rabbis were any good, they were saying it's better to stay single. Exactly. The arguments of the divorced people for remarriage really show their objection to Christ's divorce laws. 
because their arguments are based on twisted interpretations of the Word of God and on questionable texts that often aren't even talking about divorce. They conveniently avoid using obvious texts about divorce, but instead they search through the Scriptures to find texts that they can twist and distort to say what they want them to say. And many of their arguments to justify divorce border on foolishness. Just like the Jewish school of Hillel took Moses' law and, and, and made it to justify, made it to justify um, just about anything they wanted it to. They took it and, and they just twisted the scriptures to make it fit any situation. Jesus was clear in our text here on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and we either accept Jesus or we reject his teaching. There's no middle ground. And so much then for our society's lack of obedience to the word of God. And so much with their own way of, of self-love and, and pleasure-seeking in, in their ideas of how to approach marriage. If that's the way the person thinks, it's better not to get married. And if we hope to reach the world with Jesus Christ, you know, it's, it's not just the verbal witness that we give. If we hope to reach the world with, with Jesus Christ, the church has to become a people where divorce is an abnormality. Now, divorce happens because of sin. So that makes divorce a spiritual problem. Divorce is a spiritual problem. Now, some of the godliest people are victims of divorce, but not by choice. Not by choice. So this doesn't apply to them. But Christian divorce lies about Jesus and the church because Jesus and his bride will never be divorced. When people see Christians divorce, it's a lie about Christ. It's a lie about the church because again, Jesus loves his bride, the church, and he will never divorce her. Jesus loved the church as he loved his own body. He nourished her. He cherished her. He gave himself for her. And his marriage to the church is eternal. Not everlasting. And this is what the world needs to see in our marriages. You know, it's... This is what the world needs to see in our marriages and also what our children need to see in our marriages. How can we have a message for the world when we lead the way in divorce? People hear it all. Well, I tried. Well, the Lord knows my heart. In John, it says Jesus sees right through man's heart. And what I mean by that is that I've heard, I heard a woman tell me one time, you know, I'm so happy in my marriage. And I went through the script. I said, yeah, well, you don't have grounds for divorces. I know. But, but I just don't want to be in this marriage anymore. I'm going to get the divorce. And then I'm going to ask God to forgive me. It doesn't work that way. What they've done is made God's grace a dumping ground for their sin. Now, if you can have that same attitude, I believe... You know, I'm, I'm getting into divorce. I just, and then, then afterwards, realize 
man, I messed up. I sinned. I wished I hadn't have done that. And ask the Lord to forgive them. I believe he'll forgive them. Because marriage, uh, divorce and remarriage, it's not the unpardonable sin. Yet I don't want to make it thought that, you know, hey, well, I'll do the same thing. No. God knows the heart. And a lot of times that's just used as a fix it up, fix up whatever problem there might be. But to go ahead knowingly, it's a sin, and then say, I'll ask God to forgive me. I don't think it's going to work that way. It's important to understand that. So again, God covers all the bases. Jesus Christ, the husband, our husband, loves his bride and he'll never divorce her. Again, how can we have a message for the world when we're living in our marriage just like the world? And again, well, I tried. I love what Alan Redpath said about, about trying. He says, the struggle in the Christian life isn't won by trying or crying, but by dying. Hey, marriage takes a lot of dying. Alan Redpath says, your trying is seen as rebellion by Jesus. I love something I heard Pastor Xavier teach one time. He said, he said if nobody dies, nobody lives. The Bible works only for dead people. And it's true. It only works for dead people. If I'm dead to myself and I'm alive to Christ, God's word's going to work in my life. So what do you have to do? You have to die. See, without the cross, you don't have a Christian marriage. Marriage is about dying because that's what Jesus did for his bride. He gave himself for her. And Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross daily, every day, and follow me. The cross is an instrument of death. And I am to take it up every single day in every way in my Christian life, and even more so in marriage. It's dying to myself. It's dying to my wants. It's dying to me, me, me. When a man and a woman get married, they die to self. The two become one flesh. The wedding is the beginning. You know, we hear the joke about, oh man, you just committed suicide by getting married. Oh, you just, you know, you're, you're dead now. Well, there's some truth to that. Because when a man and a woman get married, they die to self. The wedding is just, is just the beginning of death. And marriage is like death because marriage wants all of you. It's a giving of all that you have till you can't give anymore. We get married many times with the idea, well, that person's going to make me the happiest person in the world. You're already looking for trouble. Ain't nobody can make you happy. The idea is, you know what? I'm marrying that person because I'm going to do my best to make that person the happiest person in the world. See, that's the servant's attitude. I'm doing it for them. I'm going to do all I can to make that person the happiest person in the world. And you know, when two people go into a relationship like that, they're going to blow each other's socks off. 
because it's just going to be an effort to please the other person. And that's, and that's based on Scripture. They esteem others higher than themselves. And a servant is to serve somebody else. And so, again, your marriage vows are the start of a lifelong practice of dying. And until you understand this, you don't know what marital love is. It's a lifelong practice of dying, of giving over not just all that you have, but all that you are. The cross needs to be lifted high at a Christian wedding because that's what makes it Christian. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever saves his, loses his life for my sake will find it, Jesus said. Jesus, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Now, dying isn't a, a one-time thing. Dying to self isn't a one-time thing. You know, there may have been that initial dying when I came to the Lord Jesus Christ. But forever after, it will be a constant dying to who I am and all that I have. Because that's the only way that the Lord Jesus Christ can be revealed continually through us. The Christian marriage is a covenant. A covenant relationship till the day we die. It's not a contract. It can't be a Christian. It can't be Christian if it's conditional. Christian marriage calls for, for a firm oath to God. A couple swearing to God that they'll never break their covenant that they made to each other and to him. And the key to, to marriage is Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes 4.12, a three-fold cord is not easily broken. When it's you, your spouse, and Jesus Christ, you can't break that. When Jesus Christ is the center of our marriage, he graces our marital love. The cross represents willing death. The covenant represents our honored word. And Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord. These are the nuts and the bolts that make a marriage last. So in closing, divorce is given by Jesus as the solution to the problems in marriage. Divorce isn't a solution to a problematic marriage. It takes a change of heart for two people to make a new start. And guess what? Jesus is the only one who can change a heart. So if you're unwilling to allow Jesus to change your heart, that's the problem. You see, it's a spiritual problem. There's nothing that the, the Lord God can't fix. But am I going to let him do it? Now, <clears throat> maybe you're in the category, <clears throat> but I've done nothing wrong. I'm not the one who cheated. I'm not the one who lied. I'm not the guilty one. That might be true. But remember, neither was Jesus when he died for your sins. A happy marriage is a union of two good forgivers. Matthew 6.15 says that if we don't forgive others, God won't forgive us. So where does that leave us? Since divorce is an act of unforgiveness. Divorce is an act of unforgiveness. It suggests that we have a problem receiving God's forgiveness. Now, for those who have been wronged, 
the innocent one, the innocent one has to remember this. You can fix it. You can fix it. You're all, you, you, you and Christ are all that you need. You alone can take care of it and you alone can make this thing work. Take, remember this picture. In the upper room, Jesus and all the disciples came in one by one. And one by one, Jesus washed their feet. But he does this knowing all of their negative thoughts about him. He does this knowing their lack of faith in him and their doubts about him and what he'd been telling them. And again, John 2.25 says, he knew what was in man. So he knew all of this. And still he's washing his feet, their feet. He knew that they were all going to desert him. They were all going to fail him. He washed Peter's feet knowing that Peter was going to deny him and abandoned him at the cross. And some argued about who was going to sit next to him on the throne. Jesus knew Thomas was going to question his resurrection, and the hardest of all to understand was he knew Judas was going to betray him and sell him down the river to the high priest and give him the kiss of death. And Jesus knelt down in front of Judas and tenderly lifts his foot and begins to lovingly wash his feet. All of these men were going to be unfaithful and Jesus knew it. Maybe you're feeling like you've been given the kiss of death in your marriage. But you know what? That's not what you want to focus on. You want to look at the gift of Je- that Jesus Christ left with, with, with the disciples. The gift that he left us. An act of love that said, I love you enough. I know you're going to be unfaithful. I love you, though I know you're going to be unfaithful. He forgave their sin before they even committed the sin. He gave them mercy even before they asked for mercy. Not one of those disciples were worthy of having Jesus wash their feet. Jesus was the only one worthy of having his feet washed, which shows us that the responsibility, and the whole, the whole point of this is shows us the responsibility of building the relationship falls on the strong one, the innocent one, the one who hasn't done anything. Not the weak one. Your strength, your, your, your fortitude to go through and make it work, to do all you can to make it work, might be the one who, that helps to save the weak one. The one who is innocent is the one who makes the move. Relationships do not flourish because the one in the wrong is punished, but because the innocent one is merciful. Does your husband, does your wife need their feet washed today? Are they in desperate need of your mercy and forgiveness? If they've repented to the Lord, he's forgiven, she's forgiven, they're restored. Why wouldn't you want to do the same? Jesus made sure that his disciples had no reason to think that he didn't love them. And lastly, John 13, 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to, uh, world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them 
to the end. God's love is unchangeable. And we should be living examples of that. Father, we thank you so much for your word here, Father. God, we thank you so much that you left us such precise guidelines, Lord, such precise instructions. It's not hard to understand, Lord. It's hard to do. And that's the problem. That's what we give up. It's hard to do. But then you've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us dunamis power. We can do it if we're willing to through Christ. So many times we're not willing. We get stubborn, hard-hearted. We want to do our own thing. We want to do it our way. We don't care about the other person. We care about ourselves. Help us, Lord, to be like our Savior who loved his bride to the end, who gave himself for her, who nourished her, who provided for her, who protected her. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you are going through many of these struggles in your marriage. Well, Jesus is the answer. I know there are many people in this church that have gone through that. They've been separated. There's been unfaithfulness in in their relationships, but they've been healed and they're flourishing and they're serving God and worshiping God. And they're a witness to others in the body. So you wouldn't be alone. Satan wants to think that, that you're alone and that it can't work and it's, it's just too far gone. Not, that's, that's the furthest from the truth. God can heal and he can begin today if you'll surrender to him. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there when the song's over. We'll pray a simple prayer of faith.